Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to episode 16, I think, of uh, The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. Today we're going to be talking Queen and Monarchy, but we'll be asking first whether Boris Johnson will survive not just to the end of the Elizabethan era, but to the end of the month. And also, what do we really know about the relationships between our longest serving monarch and the many prime ministers from Churchill onwards who've come and gone? And with all that war now upon us in the Tory party... We will be talking peace and peace processes around the world. Rory's been in the occupied West Bank amid yet another political crisis in Israel. I've been talking to Good Friday Agreement architect Bertie Ahern about the fragile peace process in Northern Ireland. And with an election in Colombia this weekend between populist left and populist right-wing candidates, how worried should we be about holding the peace there? But Rory, I think we've got to start with um, your former party and your former colleague, Boris Johnson, on a scale of a toaster that starts at one and ends in ten, how brown is the Johnson toast? Well, I, I think it's, it's obviously got to be like Spinal Tap. We're taking it up to eleven here. <laughs> um, no, I think I think I think he's he's probably about at about a seven and a half eight. Um, mm. Obviously, he is somebody who is completely determined never to resign, doesn't matter what disgrace he's in. But I would have thought a different prime minister with advisors that they trusted, anyone that they listened to, would now be preparing to go. And I sometimes wonder whether that isn't the difference, that with Mrs. Thatcher, with Mrs. May, even perhaps with John Major, there would have been people around that they trusted and relied on and would have been able to say to them, I think the game's up now, time to move on. Mm. And with Boris Johnson, you get the sense that there isn't anybody really there to tell him to do that. But that's been a deliberate strategy. He's got a cabinet of people, you've mentioned this several times, of people who are never going to challenge him because they're not very good. Sunak has been completely defenestrated. He was probably the one credible possible alternative. And I suspect around him, I mean, the one thing I will always say in Tony Blair's defence, he liked having people around him who challenged him. Um, and in fact, there's... I thought he had you. Well, he did, but he didn't just have me. He had Peter Mandelson, he had Gordon Brown. I've just spent the morning with John Prescott. Um, he had, you know, people like John who were... You know, Tony was not scared of that, whereas I get the feeling with, with, with Johnson that he, he likes to be surrounded he really by sycophants. He doesn't, doesn't like that at all. It's something that surprised me because obviously his, a public personality, you don't get that impression. 
I realized that when I was working from the foreign office, that if I came in with uncomfortable news or I tried to disagree with him too much, he would smile the first couple of times and then a slightly sort of nasty air would come on. Mm. I remember once having a, he was trying to get me to do elephant con- conservation. I keep saying conversation, conservation in Africa. There's nothing wrong with talking to elephants. <laughs> well, in a Boris way, of course, what he'd actually said at the meeting was, we must do something for charismatic megafauna, charismatic megafauna. I said, well, look, the Germans are doing this stuff in Zambia with elephants. And I think what we need to do is go in with them because they've got more than 100 staff on the ground. They're spending over $100 million a year. And he said, Germans, Rory, nine, nine. So I said, um, you know, I tried again. And the second or third time round, you really got the impression that he did not like any type of pushback. In fact, mm. I was then reading somebody who was writing about his time as mayor of London. And they pointed out that anybody who really pushed back, disagreed with him, very quickly was not invited back into the room. Mm. Which is a terrible sign in a, in, a, in a so-called leader. What do you think actually happens now? I mean, I, I don't think either of us are qualified really to work out what's going on inside his head. But what is going on inside the head of the cabinet? Because to be fair to the Tory backbenchers, I've been very, very critical of them for months now. To be fair, they came out in their numbers and basically said, this guy's got to go. They equally said, two or three of the ones I spoke to yesterday, they were saying, look, there's only so much we can do. Ultimately, the cabinet has to pull the plug. Yeah. So what is going, what is going on in their heads? So j- just, just to take it back one second to, to, to the basics of this, which is that the numbers are that he's got almost 170 people on something called the payroll. And for listeners who don't spend their whole time geeking about this, that means ministers that means trade envoys, that means vice chairman of the party, that means PPSs. These are people who are directly dependent on him for patronage, and most of them directly dependent on him for their salary, for their position. And those people are expected in these types of election to vote with the prime minister. That's why when Theresa May was challenged, and you you probably would have seen this clip because Jacob Rees-Mogg did this Mm. at the end of 2018, When she got 200 votes and the rebels got, I think, 118, immediately Jacob Rees-Mogg came out and said she's got to resign. And his argument was that the overwhelming majority of the backbenchers were against her because you expect the payroll, the ministers, to vote with them. Mm. So in the case of Boris Johnson, actually, it looks like nearly 75% of the backbenchers are against him if you remove that payroll vote. There will have been some ministers who voted against him. Yeah, there'll be a couple. There'll be a couple, but... If you think about it, and I remember thinking, thinking about this a little bit when I was voting on Theresa May's future, people in politics like being ministers, not just for selfish reasons. People kind of mock them about wanting cars and red boxes. But it's frequently very, very um, can be a bit dispiriting remaining a backbencher all the time because you don't have a budget in your constituency. You're not the mayor. You don't really have legal power. You don't have money you can spend. And you've gone into politics, many people, because they want to change things and do things. And the only way that you can really do that is to be a minister. So you might wait 5, 10, 15 years of your career before you finally become a minister. Some of these people that Boris Johnson's brought into his cabinet, like Nadine Doris, you know, haven't been ministers. I think she'd been in parliament 15 years before she was a minister. So suddenly they find themselves in a position where they're having to think about will the next leader keep them there? And nobody can be certain about that. But I've, I've just done an interview, Rory, with, with Luke North. I've been, um, I'm at this whole business week, which is why I was with John Prescott and Alan Johnson. And, and Luke North 
told me, they informed me that all the Tory MPs in their region, uh, backbenchers, have expressed their support for Johnson. Now, it doesn't mean they all voted for him, but they're all saying that publicly. So let's take them at their word. These are people who are not ministers. I mean, these are some of the backbenchers who still think that he can do a good job. Now, I agree with you, three quarters. If you've lost three quarters of your backbenchers, you're in real trouble. But what actually happens now, because the one thing we've agreed about Johnson, he won't go unless he's dragged out kicking and screaming. So what surely at the moment, it is only if the cabinet start to pull the plug and senior cabinet ministers, whether that's Gove, whether it's Raab, whether it's uh, Sunak, Wallace, whether these people start to say, listen, mate, the game's up and we've got to tell you that. That surely now is, is the only thing that will, will kick him out. Yeah. And that's traditionally what kicked out conservative prime ministers. So that, that's what happened, we think, with Anthony Eden. Senior people like Rab Butler went in, told him to move on. And it's definitely what happened to Theresa May. So she, this vote was in December 2018. Mm. And as you know, it's supposed to buy you 12 months if you survive under the current rules of the 1922 committee. And in effect, by about March, very senior people were going into her saying, I'm afraid you really can't keep going. And she then had to stand up in a meeting of the 22 committee in the House of Commons and say that if people voted for her Brexit deal, she'd step down. That didn't mm. happen. And then she announced um, in May that she would go for good. Um, so, yes, what will happen next, I predict, is that they'll lose Wakefield if they also lose Tiverton. Now, Tiverton's more is, is going to be a really big loss if they lose that. That's the big bellwether. Wakefield's almost certain. But Tiverton, you know, there's a chance he can hang on to it. If he loses it, he's losing one of the very, very safest conservative seats in the country and to the Lib Dems. And all those MPs and, and a lot of his cabinet are people who represent southern seats that are vulnerable to the Lib Dems. But they lost, they, 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 they lost a similar seat not long ago, and they've moved on from that very, very quickly, and people no longer talk about it. <laughs> no, no, they're still worrying about that. And I think okay. that underlies a lot of people's attitudes. So they'll then move in. And if they can't budge him, and if things continue to go wrong, and the one thing we can predict with Boris Johnson, I'm afraid, is that there will be more scandals to come. Mm. So when we get another couple of these things... Mm. eventually people are going to go and do what they almost did with Theresa May, which is to convince the 22 committee to bring forward another leadership challenge because you can change those rules. Yeah. Can I just say, by the way, Roy, I, I think you're not alone in thinking that sometimes I think far too much of my own views and opinions. I want to be corrected. I think I have been rightly be corrected by somebody who has pointed out that when I keep saying the 22 committee was founded in 21, it was actually 23 it, start, it, start, <laughs> it started in 22, but it came into being in 1923. Very good. Um, and the other thing, I'm going to throw something out here, which were I a journalist, which I'm not, and were I at a lobby briefing, which I wasn't, I would today have directly asked the question whether the Prime Minister had been taking any narcotic substances before his interview last night. Do you think that would have been a legitimate question? I, I, I think that's a good question. What, what was your theory on that? What, what drugs do you think he was taking? Well, he was sniffing a lot. He was hyper in a way that did not fit with the, the moment of what had just happened. The, 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 the woman reporter who'd been interviewing him for Sky, she used the word that he was very buoyant as he bounced into the room. And he just looked, I think the word is dilated, is the word that's used in some conservative circles. So, so you think maybe a little, little bit too much of the cough medicine? Well, I know we're going to talk about Colombia later on. I just think maybe I don't know. I have no evidence other than the evidence of my eyes. But my point is, I think, I think it is a legitimate question because he's in this mess 
because he broke the law. Now, I just point out, Roy, the, 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 as, as you bankrupt our podcast for this libelous allegation against. Well, I have many friends who are lawyers who would love, who would love to have Boris, Boris Johnson in a witness box. Do you not think, though? I mean, listen, I was not alone. I was not alone in thinking there was something very, very strange about his demeanour. No, let, let's just let's just. Why are you on, not biting on this quickly one? For your allegations. I right? forgot. I forgot. You're an opium taker. I forgot about that's it, that. That's exactly. So I, I, I just want to play, play one more thing to you. I think one of the issues that we're going to have to communicate to people is, and this is one of the things I think the MPs are not yet maybe fully acknowledging to themselves, is that the real problem is that he's not going to be able to govern. The real problem, and I think you'd mm. feel this if you were the communications director, is that the only thing that his communications director is thinking about day in, day out is trying to keep him alive. Mm. And that really means that there isn't much bandwidth anymore in number 10 for trying to think about whether you build a new generation nuclear power stations, how you think about COVID recovery, what mm. you do about the Leeds uh, Manchester rail line. But Rory, when we, when we did, when we did the, the Twitter spaces thing last night, you re- rightly, I think, referred to Jesse Norman's devastating analysis in his letter. And the big point he was making was there is no plan for the country. So yesterday was meant to be Sajid Javid announcing it's health week. You know, and a couple of weeks ago, it was crime week. And it, it all feels to me like a really bad, low-budget reality TV show where they're sort of having to think up new storylines which have nothing to do with the challenges facing the country. And of course, as you say, I mean, it's like the, the commentariat, their basic line now, they're looking at everything through the prism of Johnson trying to engineer his own survival. That is not a way to govern. It's impossible. No, he to can't, like he that. can't, and he can't, he can't basically land a headline. Everything that he does, unfortunately, feels like a joke. So you're right. It was meant to be health week this week. All we know is that he apparently said that he was going to. He somehow compared the NHS to a blockbuster Netflix. And then when the spokesman was asked, what does that mean? What's the comparison with Netflix? The the spokesman was completely unable to provide any details. That's all you'll get. In other words, the entire health week becomes a little sort of joke. And nobody really takes seriously anymore these announcements. I also think, do you know, do you know, think we, we should probably touch a little bit on the, on the Jubilee. I think it would be awful for the Queen. I mean, obviously, I know it used to be a treasonable offence to imagine the death of a monarch, but I think it would be awful if Boris Johnson was her final prime minister. So there has to be another prime minister before the Queen uh, leaves us. Good. It's a good, good patriotic appeal to the Conservative base there you're making. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. I see it. Good. You, you, got, did you, you got, did, got me sorted there. Uh, did you do much jubilating yourself? I did do some jubilating. I thought the Prince Wales, Prince Charles made a really good speech. I thought that was a fantastic speech in the front of Buckingham which, Palace. Which one? So, what, so Your Majesty the, the, Mummy. I thought we were doing Your Majesty Mummy again. I mean, please, Rory. <laughs> you didn't like the mummy. He, he, I didn't like that. I thought William's speech was excellent about the future of the planet. Very good. Also, I can remember Jeremy Corbyn getting absolutely lacerated because he didn't sing the national anthem um, at, a, at a church event. Prince Charles's rendition of the national anthem alongside Mummy was really pretty feeble. His lips barely moved. Yeah, I don't know. Does, do they sing the national anthem? I'm not sure whether they do. Well, William sure was. William was booming he, he it really out. He really belt, belting it out, was he? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was a bit confused by that. I, I noticed that too, and I looked at it and thought maybe their tradition is they don't sing it. Well, in which case, why did Jeremy Corbyn get so much grief? 
Well, maybe maybe the royal family think it's a bit immodest. Maybe they think they're sort of singing about themselves, like happy birthday to me or something. <laughs> no, I can get why the Queen doesn't see it, but I think Charles should see it. I, I want to, to did it has it changed your Republican views? You, has it made you more pro monarchy? Um Look, I, I, as I, I've, funny enough, I've, this event I've just been doing in Hull, I was asked about my views on the Queen because I wrote about her in my book Winners, where I said she was the ultimate British winner because of her longevity and the fact that she's been so adaptable and so forth. I think it's impossible not to have massive admiration for the Queen. But I still feel that one of the problems with our country is its class-ridden structures. I think the, the, the whole hereditary thing I find quite offensive. Um, and I don't think we'll ever be a true meritocracy when we ha- when we feel so beholden to these people who just happen to be born into a position. So I feel I've not been defending the monarchy enough, and it, it's one of the things that I feel that in 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 my you know because out of pure guilt and my my sort of knee jerk uh, deference to progressive views, I I don't do enough bringing out my true inner Tory. Um, right. So why is the why is the monarchy a good thing? So there's decent practical arguments. I think one of them is that you need a head of state. And it's actually quite a nice thing to be able to free up the time of the head of government to get on with governing and have a head of or, state. Or, to having, or having parties. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, yeah, he's really, that's true. That's a good point there. But she is able to do a lot of the ceremonial stuff that, for example, President Macron has to do and take mm-hmm. the burden of that off uh, Theresa May. You know, if she's working hard, yeah. she, can, she, can get, she can get the, prime, uh, the queen doing that. I think it's also, there's a nice unifying force and a, a sense of permanence there, which you don't get, obviously, with our prime ministers. I mean, at the moment, the Conservative Party is in a flurry of uh, short-lived prime ministers. You know, David Cameron went a year after his election in 2015. Theresa May went after two years. Boris Johnson looks like he's going to be going after two and a half years. So it's quite good to have some continuity and solidity. And I think, finally, you're left with a very awkward question of what kind of sort of washed up aged politician ends up as our president. I mean, you know, it mm. has to be someone like some sort of a kind of version of you or me. And I don't think anyone really wants that, do they? I, Rory, au contraire. I think the world is, <laughs> is, they seem to be longing for any, that's exactly what they want. Um, interesting. We, we got sent by somebody we both know from a previous life, Francis Crook, who was the, ran the prison reform trust yep. and is now working on something called commission on political power. And she sent us quite an interesting paper about uh, are we are we just sort of going to carry on with the monarchy as it is? And she ran th- the, the paper ran through these six options: option one, status quo; option two, more formal powers for the uh, unelected head of state; option three, moving to a, towards a purely ceremonial head of state and transferring those powers to a court or a parliamentary committee; option four. Uh, keep the monarchy as ceremonial, but have an elected head of state. Option five, uh, purely ceremonial, but with more accountability, sort of take away a few of their houses and stuff. And option six, fully fledged republic, which I thought was quite interesting that they were thinking about I th- that. I think it's quite good. And I think one of the things that is interesting is this question of how you get, I, I wouldn't ever want to get rid of the monarchy. Obviously, that's my inner Tory speaking. But I think it is worth thinking about um, how you balance the ceremonial against the real political power. And the truth is that they're not really able to exercise power in the way that they were in the past, whatever their theoretical powers are. And you could see that with the terrible embarrassment of Boris Johnson convincing the Queen to prorogue Parliament. Which, which, she, knew, which she knew was wrong. 
And she didn't really have much option. I mean, it's not really possible, unfortunately, for the monarch to disagree with an elected prime minister for understandable reasons. I mean, we live in a democracy, so she wouldn't really have felt that she had the power to do that. She would have taken legal advice on whether this was a power that existed or not. So I would have thought that there might be a time might come where we are clearer about those powers which are no longer real powers and work out where they lie. And I think the prorogation mm. is a very good example of that because that, that was absolutely shocking to see that mm. Boris Johnson could do that. And it's really good that the Supreme Court was able to intervene and overturn that. But her powers, the powers of the monarch, uh, they rest as, as it were, idle powers. They're powers that are not expected to be used. But that, that, doesn't, that doesn't matter if you don't get a prime minister playing fast and loose. That's where I get worried with Boris Johnson. I think most of this stuff in the British Constitution is fine if people behave and play by the rules. Mm. But we're beginning to get now with Boris Johnson somebody who seems to, yeah, not seems to, obviously does bend the rules on prorogation, bends the mm. rules on the ministerial code wants to bend the rules on lobbying, wants to bend the rules on campaign contributions to his wallpaper. So that's just another way of saying it may be for someone like me who's beginning to favour a written constitution that we tighten up that. Because the terrible problem that we have is because the monarch has almost absolute power in theory, or a lot mm. of absolute power in theory, a prime minister can exploit the power of the crown to do extraordinary things. Hence these Henry VIII acts and stuff. Mm. Um, did you, what, what did you, what did you make of the relationship between the Queen and Tony Blair or the Queen and Gordon Brown? Um, I mean, interestingly, neither of them really talked about it much. I mean, I talked to Tony about absolutely everything, as you know and as you can imagine. But he was always very, quite tight lipped about his exchanges with the Queen. I sometimes heard them. I would sometimes, sometimes if we were traveling or whatever, and Tony wouldn't be able to go to the palace for the audience, and sometimes they might do it on the phone. I can remember during the week of Princess Diana's death, a couple of phone conversations where I was in the room, but only heard Tony's side. Because the thing about the, the conversation between the prime minister and the, and, the, and the monarch is that they are literally, they have nobody else. There's no record that there's nobody else in the room. And I think it's extraordinary the, the way that these Sent this, these perceptions have developed about her relationships with the different prime ministers. So, for example, the fact that she refers to Churchill as Winston, people just assume there was a closeness there. We don't yeah. know that. Yeah. Um, we know from, we know from Churchill's memoirs that he felt very protective and very supportive. And I think it was very much that was the way the relationship went. And then, you know, you hear, um, not least from people who worked with Harold Wilson, that she she was quite fond of Harold Wilson, that she was quite fond of John Major, that she didn't much like Thatcher and she had a bit of a thing about Tony. And I, I don't know if those things are true or not. I think they did find it difficult um, that even though they asked for our help in the aftermath of Diana's death and, and they asked us to sort of help them plan the funeral i think they did sort of slightly resent that in some way and whether whether i, I also think the hunting thing that, that maybe was difficult but i don't know my my sense would be that she would really like john major um uh i i just have a feeling that that's that's her kind of prime minister um i can't believe i can't believe she thinks anything other than that boris johnson is a complete chancer I had an interesting observation from someone here in Jordan who said that one of the reasons they think that um, we continue to have a very positive relationship towards the royal family is that uh, the Queen and the Prince of Wales uh, don't necessarily spend their money doing things that anybody else really wants to do. So we see that what they really like doing is tromping around on really wet 
Scottish moors and battered out landers. But if they were actually on spending their whole time on super yachts in the Mediterranean, uh, people would be more grumpy. Anyway, that was the mm. Jordanian perspective. Okay, okay. How's the Jordanian king going down with the people at the moment? Well, that, that is, that's a really, really interesting question. So mm. the, the answer is it's quite difficult to answer for somebody living in Jordan. Um, unlike in Britain, talking about the monarchy here is really, really forbidden. Yeah. Everybody refers very, very politely to his majesty all the time. Yeah. It's obviously a complicated society because more than half the population are of Palestinian descent mm. and were not originally part of um, yeah, would, would, would not originally see themselves as Jordanians. So they have a complicated attitude towards the mm. monarchy. Mm. Um, and of course, the monarchy itself came where the rulers, their descendants, the Prophet Muhammad, who came from what's now Saudi Arabia yeah. in, after, in the 1920s. Um, so the answer is I'm basically avoiding your question because um, you, you can sort of you're sketching around because I, I you're taking I quite a long time to, spend, to do it. I'm sort of avoiding spending the rest of my life in a Jordanian jail. Yeah. Have you met the king? I've met the king a few I, times. I, I have. I have. Yes, I have. Good. I have. And yeah. did you bow? Did you bow? Did you do the little bow? I, I tend to keep my bowing for the British royal family. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm supposed to be bowing to other other royal families. I'm a, before we go to a break, I'll just tell you one story that Tony Blair did tell me. He'll probably end up in the tower for this. Um, but he went, he, he did come back once from an audience with the Queen and said, Oh God, I think I made a terrible mistake. I said, What? He said, Well, I don't know whether she understood what I was saying, but basically she said to me that she was going to, to Ireland uh, and she was wearing a gr this green dress, a bit like the one she was wearing on the Platinum Jubilee the other night. And he said, I hope you, he said, I hope you're not going to wear that dress. <laughs> 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 and, 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 and he sort of just for a moment felt that maybe she was he her prime minister was commenting on her dress sense rather than the <laughs> the significance of the green color uh, I, think, um, I can see that would not go down very well right i think on that let's go to our break ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you'll be back with Alistair and Rory in a minute, but we thought you might be interested in this week's episode of The Rest is History. Yes, we have been looking at the ways that British Prime Ministers have been kicked out of office, so not losing elections to the opposition, but being stabbed in the back by their own side. From Robert Walpole, all the way back in 1742, through Robert Peel, Herbert Asquith, Neville Chamberlain, Margaret Thatcher, and all the way up to Theresa May. Expect backstabbing, scandal, and out-and-out -out corruption, so nothing like 2022 nothing like 2022 at all search for the rest is history or you can find the link in the episode notes for this podcast and now back to the show welcome back part two of episode 16 of the rest is politics with me alistair campbell and me rory stewart and we were dealing with monarchy, both in Britain and in Jordan. Let's let's stay in your region. You've just been in um, in Nablus, yeah, in the West Bank. I think the first thing is that anybody who's interested in Israel and Palestine 
needs to get out on the ground and needs to get out to the West Bank and ideally Gaza because it is so much raw, more raw on the ground than you could possibly believe. Mm. So Nablus, for example, which is a very, very beautiful, uh, ancient city, one of the oldest Mm. cities in the world. Weirdly, its name, I I discovered when I went there, is from the Roman name Neapolis, new city, which has Mm. become Nablus over the years. But it is a real classic ancient bazaar city with covered markets and jewelers and ceramicists and tile makers. And, and it was the, one of the centers of the Intifada 2002-2003. So there are nearly 200 buildings in the old city are simply missing. Mm. They, they were destroyed in the fighting and thousands of them were damaged. And as you work your way in and out of these settlements... One of the things that surprised me most, I was in Bethlehem the day before. Bethlehem is a place that some people listening will have been to uh, as visitors. It's a, a safe city. It's a very beautiful city. It's, it's where this famous um, church, the Nativity, is. But if you approach it as an Israeli, there is a huge red sign up saying it is illegal for any Israeli to come in. You may be killed. And that's put up by the Israeli government. And it's... It, it, it was one of the things that surprised me. I was talking to Israeli friends and saying I was going to Bethlehem. And they said, oh, be careful. That's very, very dangerous. It's not dangerous at all. But these barriers have created, mm. I, I, I'm afraid, communities that have so little connection to each other. I saw another Israeli friend and he, I just got the sense that he might almost have been living in Los Angeles for all the connection mm. he had with what was happening in Nablus. I've, I've been to Nablus a couple of times, and including in the mid-80s when the, the, I think it had one of the longest curfews um, that the region has had. And I, 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 is the, the, grand, the old mosque there, there's a sort of 10th or 11th century mosque in, there. That incredible. I and it's built on the site of a crusader church, which is built on the site of a, a Samaritan synagogue from the 4th century. So you, as in the story of the Good Samaritan. Wow. Well, I, 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 rem, I, rem, I do remember... Visiting that, and my, my, the other memory I have of Lablus is the fact that it's twinned with Dundee. I don't know why I remember that, but oh, that's brilliant! Oh, I didn't know that, and I'm going to do something with that because, of course, Dundee is very famous for marmalade. And I discovered reading Ibn Battuta, the 14th century Arab geographer, that <laughs> Nablus used to export a form of jam made from something that looks like an orange but isn't. It's got well, a there you go. May, maybe yet. that explains, and it also might explain why. Sometimes you do see Palestinian flags at uh, football matches in in uh, in Dundee, and I no, think the other that's twin some, town. That's something else. I think you've got there. But it is possibly. true that there's there's true that there's a lot of Palestinian enthusiasm for Scottish football as a result. I'm pretty sure that Dundee, and I think the other one is Dublin. Uh, that Dublin's twin with Nablus. But the other and the other thing I remember um, about Nablus was a mayor, and I don't know if he's still the mayor, but. Uh, he, he was called Adli Yaish. I don't know if he's still the man now. Um, but he was one of the guys who was locked up for quite a long time without any charge in one of the sort of tit for tat when I think there'd been a kidnapping of an Israeli soldier and, and they just decided to chuck a few people in jail. I'll tell you the thing that really worries me, and you're in the region and you're visiting places like this all the time. It sort of isn't on the international agenda anymore. It's kind of fallen off. And if I think about... You know, we can talk a bit about Northern Ireland and, and, and what's happening in Colombia at the moment as well. But these peace processes, they need constant international support and management. And I don't get the feeling of any of the major powers at the moment seeing the Middle East as a, as a priority. No, no, it's very strange. It's, it's partly, unfortunately, that Boris Johnson, Liz Truss 
have, I think, foolishly decided to back out of the Middle East peace process. It's partly the internal politics of the Conservative Party where people think that they need to take a very one-sided approach to that. I don't think they do. I think it's foolish. I think you can have very good relationships with Israel and also drive the Middle East peace process forward. I think it's a mistake. Mm. I think it's also true, unfortunately, that so much else has happened. ISIS, Syria, Arab Spring, the amazing economic growth of of Dubai, the developments in Saudi, all of which have distracted attention from Israel-Palestine. But also, is the, the, we're, we're about to have another collapsed Israeli government, aren't we? Yes, seems seems to be in real trouble. And, and, yeah. and, and, and that's because the, the parliament's voted against this the extension of applying Israeli civilian law to the settlers. And the other memory I have of, of Nablus, correct me if this is wrong, am I not right that it is pretty much completely surrounded by Israeli settlements? There are settlements pretty close, yeah. There's a settlement yeah. on the hill pretty close. I, I also saw a very new Palestinian city um, called Rawadi, which is just in the process of being built, which is amazing. It looks like sort of Gotham City on a hill. Incredible skyscrapers. It's the first brand new planned city of that sort I've ever seen in Palestinian territory with an enormous Roman amphitheater, a big, big gamble by a Palestinian businessman called Bashar Masri on trying to create the city of 20, 40,000 people in the middle of nowhere. And I'll be very interested to see whether that works. But you get a sense that he's really, there's something uh, quite inspiring about the way that he's sort of betting mm. on the Palestinian economy there. Now, you mentioned Johnson and Truss sort of disinterest in the Middle East, but far closer to home. I had a long, long session with Bertie Ahern, the former Irish Taoiseach the other day, who was Tony Blair's oppo during the Good Friday Agreement. And he was really quite down about what's happening in Northern Ireland at the moment. And I mean, the, I didn't know this until he told me. You know, the, do you remember the North-South bodies that we set up as part of the Good Friday Agreement and the sort of the cooperation between yep. North and South? They don't even meet anymore. There's nobody kind of corralling and holding the line and keeping people sort of moving in the right direction. And I always remember Tony Blair always used to say about these peace processes, they either move forward or backwards, they never stand still. And and I think that what, what I honestly, of all the many, many, many reasons that I... Neil Kinnett keeps telling me I mustn't say hate, but that I really despise this government. The cavalier vandalism with which they are approaching the Good Friday Agreement yeah. is just another little toy in their game of Brexit. Interestingly, of the MPs who are getting in touch with me, one of the things, those that are sort of supporting what I'm saying about Boris Johnson, right? these are mm. loyal Conservative MPs in the party mm. who feel that I should be calling out Boris Johnson. It's about Northern Ireland and the Republic and the peace process that they're most disturbed. That's the thing that's upsetting them most. Yeah, I noticed um, Roger Gale, who's been very, very critical, but I noticed he's talked a lot about that. Um, and, I, and I do think there's this sort of, you know, he's meant to be the lead. And also he calls himself the Secretary of State for the Union. Uh, just another kind of little slogan that he dreamt up for himself. Do you know why he does that? Just incidentally. Go on. <laughs> when he was running to be Prime Minister um, in that leadership race, which I was in, he wanted to try to get the votes of Conservative MPs in Scotland. And to do so, he went in front of One Nation and there was a proposal there should be a Secretary of State for the Union. It was a sort of idea of a much more senior cabinet position to replace the Secretary of State for Scotland, Wales, etc., where you'd have a real cabinet big hitter that was going to go and get money and invest and demonstrate what the United Kingdom was doing for all the nations in the United Kingdom. And he promised, Boris Johnson promised he'd create a Secretary of State for the Union. But of course, the way, 
way in which he did it is just to give himself the name. <laughs> did he ever promise you a job? You told that very funny story in our Twitter Spaces thing. I'm not, I'm not quite yeah, sure how that no, thing I, worked. I, but no, it, go on then. It's, so it's lovely the way he does it. So what he did to me is this was 2016 when he was running first against Theresa May. He got me to his office and he said, Rory, Rory, don't believe a word that I'm about to say to you. Don't believe a single word because I'll deny it all immediately afterwards. But I'd love to have you in my cabinet flying around Europe, sprinkling a little bit of English eau de cologne. <laughs> what is English eau de cologne? I mean, it's surely I eau de cologne. Actually, I don't really know. I thought it's, it's from French, cologne. It? The cologne point of eau de cologne is, it? is it's from cologne. Yeah, I don't think, I don't really wear it. It's not very English, the whole idea, is it? I also not quite, it's a sort of fast, just a sort of wonderful vision though, because I imagine that's what he said to 200 people when he wrote them these handwritten notes. You saw it with Jesse Norman's resignation letter that he'd apparently yeah. promised a job in the cabinet. He must have, I mean, the, the, I, I, the palace surely have to remind him occasionally that there is a, a numerical limit on the number of knighthoods you can do in a, in a calendar year. <laughs> you, you can't give them all. Now listen, can we talk a little bit about, about Colombia? Because that's the other peace process that, I think is, I think is even more complicated than Northern Ireland. And Santos, the president who sort of drove it, deservedly won the Nobel Peace Prize. But we've got yet another election between yet another right-wing populist and yet okay. another left-wing so, populist. So, so let's just explain the Colombian peace process very, very quickly for those people listening who are not totally on top of it. So you had a very, very long-standing fight between effectively leftist groups and often a standoff with a more right-wing government. Yeah. This was eventually resolved in a very, very bold way by Santos, who'd come in initially on quite a right-wing ticket, mm -hmm. being quite tough on what he called terrorists. He then flipped that around, uh, pulled a peace deal together, and then he made the great mistake of all time, which was having secured the peace deal, he then presented it in a referendum to the Colombian people, and the Colombian people narrowly rejected it. And then he did the right thing. <laughs> That's right. By saying, well, we view, plow ignored on. ignored the referendum entirely and just drove it through. Well, it was the, the result of the referendum, I will let people know, it was 50.2 against and 49.8. He then said, right, OK, well, let's sit down with the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, and let's kind of revise the deal and let's put that through the parliamentary processes. And he got away with it. And here's the other thing, Rory. I didn't know this until I was sort of looking it up the other day. What famous international event happened on June the 23rd, 2016? I do not know. What was the famous event? Go on then. Oh, you do know. June the 23rd, 2016 was the Brexit referendum, okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was also, that was the day that the agreement was signed in Colombia. And that was the one that went to the referendum and that was the one that was lost. But you've now got these two, you've got these two populist, uh, one of them, by the way, this guy Hernandez, he's kind of come out of nowhere. He's almost 80. Uh, he's expressed his admiration for Hitler in the past. He's bases his whole campaign on Trump. He does everything on TikTok. And he came second, and he's now going, going into the runoff. I think the left guy, uh, Petro, will win, um, but it's not guaranteed. And both of them are sort of saying the right things-ish about trying to make the peace deal work. But I have a real worry that just as with, I think, Cameron didn't show enough interest in the Good Friday Agreement, I don't think Johnson gives it enough care and attention, there is a little bit of, if it's not invented here, they sort of don't really give it attention. And, I mean, the, the numbers in Colombia, I mean, 218,000 dead, 45,000 children killed, 8,000 missing, 
5.7 million people sort of, you know, displaced, um, 28,000 abducted. I mean, this is, this is on a scale that's... No, it's, it's shocking. But another thing, given that this is a programme about politics, which is um, a horrible irony of the whole thing, is that Santos, having, you know, received every kind of medal and peace prize imaginable, left office with a very, very low approval rating. And yeah. the whole a party system of Colombia exploded. He'd come into a party which had been dominated by a man called Uribe, and he then annoyed Uribe. So it would be like, um, I don't know, Boris Johnson coming in and sort of annoying Theresa May. No, I think, I think, I think a better parallel is it's Keir, it's Keir Starmer getting elected Labour leader by signalling that he sort of broadly supports Jeremy Corbyn, but then comes in and completely changes everything. Very good. Okay, except in this case, Uribe turned out to have such an amazing personal level of support that he was able to effectively topple Santos mm. and run mm. someone against him from a totally sort of new party and put his protege in as his replacement. So yeah. it would be like um, Jeremy Corbyn sort of stepping outside saying, screw you, setting up a whole new movement and then mm. running against running against Keir Starmer and putting his protege in. Which he, which he may, by the way, do in uh, in, 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 Is, in Islington, uh, for all we know. But anyway, I, I sort of is is one of those things. Those three things together: your Middle East, uh, Northern Ireland, and Colombia. I just think we it, it's just, it's just important to recognise the fragility. Finally, populism, because I think that the story here in in Colombia and in Peru, and actually in a lot of Latin America now, is the emergence of these hardly known radical populist parties. Yeah, just at yeah. the moment at which you're feeling cheery about the Slovenian results. <laughs> now, listen, I think the finest question that we have had of the many thousands of questions, which we literally have had thousands and thousands of questions, Ed Blackburn, I will forgive him his name. You probably know, Rory, why I don't like the name Blackburn. Yeah, Do you yeah, know that? I, I can, I can, that's a football thing, I guess. That's good. Well done. Well yeah, done. Thank you. His question is... Could famine in Africa be the thing that forces China's hand on Russia-Ukraine as the maritime grain crisis will lead to a diminution of their soft power? I think that's a great question. Well, I'd, I'd just start by saying that one of the things that's consistent at the moment is that nobody talks enough about Africa. We keep underestimating Africa. And one in 10 children born in the world are going to be born in Nigeria by 2050. It'll be about 40% of the population of the world in Africa. Yeah. And I think that, that one of the things I like about that question is he's reminding us of how interconnected the world is, how it goes both ways. So shortage of grain coming out of Russia ends up with people in a very, very difficult situation in sub-Saharan Africa, which is, mm. imports 60% of its wheat. But the, it can also go the other way, backlash mm. against China and all that comes out of that. Yeah. I've, j I've just been reading this, this book about um, Xi Jinping, um, and it's, it's, it's German. It's written by two guys called Stefan Aust and Adrian Geigers. And what's the book called in German? It's called Der Mächtigste Mann der Welt, The Most Powerful Man in the World, which I very think good. is a very fair title. Very good, yeah. And you say we don't talk about enough about Africa. I don't think we talk nearly enough in our media about China. Um, and interestingly, I don't, I, I'm not aware of an English language biography that is just about Xi Jinping. But what's really fascinating about this book um, and it's, it's a story that you, you know, broadly we will know, but when you see it laid out through his own words and his own life story, it's just the extent to which it has always been his belief that Britain 
dominated the world after the first industrial revolution. Then the Americans took over and they've had the biggest economy in the world since 1872. And it has always been his belief that that is not the natural order of things and that China must be the dominant power in the world. And there's an extraordinary quote from um, uh, Sigmar Gabriel, who was in in the previous um, German government, asking Kagame in Rwanda why they were sort of, you know, allowing the Chinese to kind of basically mop up all the foreign direct investment opportunities. And Kagame said, by the time you lot have put a stake in the ground, the Chinese have built two airports. Um, and they, you know, the, the Silk Road, the way that this book tells the story of the Silk Road as a kind of strategic kind of hoover, just hoovering up power and influence around the world. And of course, if the grain, I think what's great about Ed Blackburn's question, if this grain crisis does lead to uh, the, the, some of the poorer countries in the world facing challenges that, you know, we can barely begin to think about, then it does slightly change the game for them. I will, the other thing I'd say about this book is it, it sort of does make, because Xi Jinping's got quite a nice soft face, do you know that you're not allowed to Google Winnie the Pooh? You, I know it's not Google, but you can't find Winnie the Pooh on the internet in China because you're, people think you're ta- mocking him. Huh. You're mocking him, yeah. And you can't, you can't find Tiananmen Square. And he is, I think, on the ruthlessness front, he makes Putin look quite tame. It's it's amazing, isn't it? Um, the the other biography I'm aware of is by French Frenchman, Le Monde correspondent, and that maybe goes to your point that mm. actually we're not awfully good in Britain. It's sad. Mm. We're not we're mm. not doing we're not doing doing well enough on making sure that we write well in our media and elsewhere about these things. Th- there is sometimes good good long stuff, sort of London Review of books. Sometimes, but I, th- I think if you if you think about just how much coverage Donald Trump can get for basically sort of farting into a paper bag, and and yet Xi Jinping can make really big significant speeches about the future of the world, and nobody really bats an eyelid. Uh, anyway, it's a fascinating book. Have, have, have I told you just to finish? Have I told you my experience of going. Maybe I did. Going, I went out to Kenya for President Kenyatta's inauguration, and it was a sort of. Grand thing, British minister arrives, red carpet, all this, and I was sat in the front row. And then suddenly, out of my right hand, came three completely unknown Chinese officials. Nobody really knew who they were in the hierarchy. And I was immediately shuffled three rows backwards, and my front row seats were occupied by the deputy vice, deputy, deputy vice (laughs) minister of the Supreme Presidium. (laughs) Right. On that... I think we're, we're coming towards an end. Now, remind, uh, we should remind people we're back tomorrow with our question time episode. There were some, there were some very, very, as ever, some very, very interesting questions. And, fantastic. Uh, 500 questions. And I think people may be a bit relieved after us banging on about Boris Johnson's. And we disagreed. We, dis- we disagreed agreeably about austerity again. We did. We did. We did. We did. We did. Right. Alistair, uh, much love from me. And this is goodbye. Pleasure as always. Speak to you next week. Bye-bye. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.